Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, investing in local communities, economies, and a sustainable future. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Member SIPC. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. We have a special guest in London, David. Uh, yes, Willem Bowder, the global chief economist at Citigroup, joins us from there. We miss having him here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios in New York, but great to have you uh, with us from London. Uh, there, is, uh, there is such symbolism to this moment when we see this letter being delivered to, to Donald Tusk, the, the EU Council uh, president. What notionally changes as a result of this? And, and did we have the symbolism? What, what's going to change it with regard to the economy when this letter is delivered? Well, uh, the clock starts ticking. Uh, unless uh, a miracle happens, Britain will be out of the EU in two years' time. Um, and so the, uh, this will concentrate the mind. Um, you'll see uh, the opening bid of the British government in that letter, and we'll get, uh, I think also quite publicly, I would expect, uh, the uh, initial response of the uh, European Council and and the Commission, um, and indeed the European Parliament, which of course has to approve the whole deal. It really is a, it, it's a defining moment. Um, uh, and uh, uh, I think those who hoped it wouldn't happen or felt that it could happen uh, smoothly and without um, uh, any material pain for uh, the British economy will, I think, have their nose uh, rubbed in the unpalatable facts. Uh, as the weeks become months. How worried are you here about the element of, of surprise? Indeed, we've heard quite a bit from Prime Minister Theresa May since, uh, since this referendum. Uh, she stuck to the timetable she set out uh, several months ago. Uh, are, are you worried about a sort of surprise factor here in light of what we've seen in the UK economy thus far? No. I, uh, uh, I think the uh, positions are, are pretty clear. Uh, the British government has... Uh, I think, uh, waded back from its uh, uh, Conservative Party conference uh, rhetoric and its embrace of uh, uh, the hard Brexit. It's clearly trying to uh, find a way of getting uh, some interim agreement which will have significant continuity yeah. for British business. So I, uh, I think there's, uh, at this point, um, little... Uh, I think uh, uh, I'm not surprised if we don't get an early agreement on uh, uh, the existing EU citizens in the UK and uh, UK citizens in the EU right. on Northern Ireland and on the budget. That would be a surprise. If they, we do this in two years, uh, Professor Bowder, it will be a century, 100 years from the Paris Peace Conference mm -hmm. associated with Versailles. I don't see a David Lord George, a Vittorio Orlando, a George Clemenceau, or a Woodrow Wilson in sight. How do negotiations actually occur? I mean, what? How do you visualize negotiations? Are they done at a, you know, La Quinta Hotel in Brussels, or I mean, I mean, what's going to be at the table? Where's the table going to be? 
there's no precedent for exactly. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, for, for all I know, they uh, will be uh, sitting in the Roi d'Espagne on the Grand Place in Brussels. But uh, I think they'll probably uh, you know, meet in uh, <laughs> commission premises or something like that. Uh, it, it's. Uh, I doubt, I doubt whether they would insist on, on neutral territory, sort of a uh, demilitarized zone in the middle of, of Brussels. Um, I, I think the logistics are actually not going to be that important. It's really uh, the mandates that the negotiators will start with. And it will be especially interesting to see uh, what the, um, uh, you know, the commission and uh, the council come up with in terms of guidelines and uh, sort of opening positions. Uh, that's the great uncertainty to me at this point. Willem, what are the soft data telling us now about the, the UK economy? How is sentiment in the United Kingdom about uh, the Brexit, indeed, what may follow after? Uh, well, uh, sentiment has been remarkably robust until quite recently. There is some indication now that, especially among SMEs, and uh, very recently also among uh, uh, you know, major corporations, uh, Japanese among them, uh, uh, making uh, uh, capital expenditure and FDI decisions, that uh, uh, they are um, uh, looking at ways of uh, reducing the exposure to to Britain. But, at the moment, but until now, uh, consumer sentiment has been uh, remarkably robust. And uh, uh, as has uh, corporate sentiment, the only place where we've seen concern expressed and the anticipation of pain has been this, the exchange rate. Mm. And ironically, that has, of course, helped yeah. uh, the rest of the economy. No, there's no question about that. Let's come back with Willem Bowder in our London studios on this most historic day. I'll tell you, David, it was something to see the prime minister migrate by Jaguar from 10 Downing Street over to Parliament. I mean, there's that, you know, for, even for us from a distance, it's happening. Yeah, and the, uh, to see the, see the footage that our colleague Matt Miller tweeted out as well of, yeah. uh, of the uh, the ambassador of the EU arriving in a Jaguar as well with that letter in a briefcase yeah. uh, soon to be delivered to the president of the EU council. Yeah, I mean, I, I would have gone in a Range Rover, <laughs> uh, Land Rover Defender. Marked the moment you know, with a larger wheel, vehicle. With yes. the hunter boots looking very yeah. queen-like, yeah. you know, very, like out in the tundra. <laughs> David Gurren, Tom Keenan, New York, in our London studios, Willem Bowder of Citigroup. Professor Bowder, help me here with your great call on slower economic growth, on a global slowdown. What's it going to take for you to move your vector? I don't mean to get the gloom right, but how do you get more optimistic? What do you need to observe in the global economy that would get you more optimistic about economic growth? Well, uh, from a sustained longer-run perspective, uh, we would need... um, uh, structural reforms, um, more uh, capital expenditure, uh, broadly defined, including uh, infrastructure, human capital, and I think uh, an elimination of trade barriers and uh, barriers to of mobility uh, of labour and capital. So all these things uh, be moving in the opposite direction. So that's un- unlikely to happen from a short-run cyclical perspective. Uh, what we uh, you know. Anything that uh, looks like a fiscal stimulus um, implemented or anticipated will boost uh, the level of activity. Uh, That's uh, happened in the U.S. to a certain extent, although uh, with growing doubt about the ability of the Trump administration to deliver a meaningful fiscal stimulus. I think that particular source of animal spirits may be uh, wearing thin, 
Um, and uh, uh, likewise, we have you know, less fiscal restraint in the euro area, partly as a result of a number of key elections taking place. All that, I think, boosts economic activity in a cyclical, uh, in a cyclical manner. Um, that's not sustainable, of course, but it's nice while it lasts. You mentioned that growing doubt, and I wonder sort of what's changed about your outlook here over the last week in light of what we saw in Washington on Friday as we saw that health care bill being pulled off the, pulled off the, con- uh, the Congress's floor. Yeah, it was just the ability to deliver, right? Um, one really has to um, look at, uh, uh, the, at Washington as not having uh, the Republicans in charge of the White House and uh, both Houses of Congress, but uh, being you know, in charge of uh, both Houses of Congress with an independent in, uh, in the White House. And uh, it's become clear that the ability uh, of the president and uh, the Congress to deliver key reforms is, is very questionable. Uh, and even within the Republicans in the House and the Senate, uh, there are these you know, very sharp divisions now which have undermined Speaker Ryan's uh, position, his credibility, uh, the, yeah. um, and the Freedom Caucus and other uh, Tea Parties um, are, uh, um, I think, orthogonal uh, both to uh, Ryan and, and to Trump. So it just looks yeah. like a bit of a disorganized mess. Help us with this strange word, eurosclerosis. I mentioned it the other day and got a nasty note from someone saying, oh, you're so gloomy. The nominal GDP that Citigroup looks for for the United States of America, is it unique, separate, and discreet, or is it just plain old simple eurosclerosis? Um, the, you mean the, the low growth in the United States? Yes. Um, it, it's uh, uh, partly, of course, uh, a reflection of, uh, of aging, of demographics. But on top of that, uh, I think there is uh, 40 years of uh, progressive uh, overregulation, uh, increasingly distortionary and uh, I think um, uh, distributionally uh, undesirable uh, taxation, um, a legal system uh, that uh, has made uh, lawsuits so easy uh, that um, a whole range of human activity, including healthcare, uh, are slowed down <laughs> and. Uh, a burden with enormous costs. So the U.S. is indeed a country that uh, uh, is um, in deep-seated supply-side trouble and needs uh, uh, both um, widespread uh, deregulation and um, uh, active uh, tax reforms and uh, selective boosts in public expenditure on health, education, well, and infrastructure. So the, the country really has all its work cut out for us, for uh, itself. Willem Bader, thank you so much with Citigroup. Greatly appreciate it. Particularly, uh, David and I, again, thank you for uh, your work the day of the Netherlands <laughs> election. That was really a special uh, moment. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of Global Connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC.
On this historic day for the United Kingdom, Daniel Jurgen, uh, Professor Jurgen, Dr. Jurgen, rather, The Commanding Heights is the iconic book on the ascent of the United Kingdom. This is not a United Kingdom Clement Attlee would know at the end of World War II. The prime minister gave a rousing speech today. What is the perspective you can give? on how these negotiations will go for Prime Minister May, given the sprawl from 1952, all of the trade discussions with the EU, the Union. What is the perspective today forward? I think that the, uh, good morning, Tom, I think that the phony war that's gone on for the last 10 months uh, about Brexit, of course, it's now the real war has begun, and I think it's going to be a big and tough struggle. No one really knows how it's going to go. The EU is proposing a $60 billion bill to uh, uh, to Britain. And I think it's what's at stake, of course, is not only for Britain, but is for the EU, which is uh, dealing with the stresses that come from the common having a common currency that isn't backed up by common institutions, the euro, and compounded by uh, the open borders. So, I mean, for for the EU, as much as Britain, this negotiation right. is so essential because it's also about the future of the EU. Where is the commanding heights of Europe? Is it at Chancellor Merkel's desk? At this point, it has been Germany has been really the political and economic engine that has kept the whole thing together. Her position thought to have been weakened by the influx of a million migrants, but the Germans did well in the most recent um, uh, uh, elections. Uh, her party, so she is the, um, you know, she is the kind of personification of Europe right now, particularly with this uh, potential disarray in France. There was a remarkable moment in the speech, I thought, when Prime Minister Theresa May said, perhaps more than ever, the world needs the democratic, liberal values of Europe. And you heard the jeering and the laughter uh, from the backbenchers uh, in Parliament. What did you make of that line? Indeed, what did you make of the overtures that the Prime Minister made uh, to the greater European community in the speech today? Well, I think she's, uh, you know, she has to play a very complex hand here in terms of what what part of Europe or Europe connections will remain. And so, uh, you know, that's an, an olive branch, in a way, to the, um, uh, to the Europeans. Uh, you know, I'm sure that line was very carefully crafted as they begin these really tough negotiations, for which there's no precedent. What's the, the, the best-case scenario here for a deal? I imagine the best case is one that's concluded or, or agreed upon within uh, this two-year period. But what are you looking for when, when, when you think of what a good deal for, for the U.K. and the E.U. might be? Well, for the U.K., I think it would be a way to continue to be active in a, almost in a, in a free trade-like way uh, with the E.U., sort of going back to uh, what the European community was, a, a trading group, and to maintain the financial position of London as a, as a, as a, as yeah. a basis for Europe. Uh, I think for the EU, the stakes really are to make sure that this is not the first of many uh, and that this doesn't feed uh, populism. And I'll tell you, uh, you know, the French elections will be so, so critical uh, to what happens next. On oil, and of course, everybody wants to know what Daniel Jurgen thinks of oil. Let's bring the two together. Oil in Scotland. The North Sea isn't the North Sea of the commanding heights, is it? No, uh, it's uh, quite different. You know, uh, when they had that Scottish referendum, which was very close, 
uh, a few years ago. It was when oil was still $100 a barrel. I've often wondered how that vote would have gone when oil was 40 or $50 a barrel, because part of Scottish nationalism has always been, well, it's our oil and we'll get the oil. And uh, But in a lower price uh, range, uh, Scotland, you know, it, it doesn't have that uh, fiscal advantage that comes from uh, higher-priced oil. So, um, uh, you know, it's a question of the Sp- Scottish Parliament may vote that they want a referendum, but that doesn't mean that there'll necessarily be a referendum. How important? So for, for, yeah. I should say, so for uh, Theresa May, this is really a two-front war. One is uh, one was with Brussels and the other is with Edinburgh. How important are these uh, EIA data we'll get today at 3.30 at Wall Street time? Oh, listen uh, and, to you, uh, <laughs> putting Jurgen on a spot. He'll never come on the show again. And, and fold it into the conversation that, uh, that was which, so dominant. Which day, I'm, I didn't say, which data did you say? The EIA data. <laughs> oh, right. The EIA data. And fold it into the conversation you had in Houston a couple of weeks back at your, at your Sarah conference, uh, you know, what we heard from the, the Saudi oil minister there. Well, it was very interesting because, of course, uh, when we began the conference, the oil price was up uh, 75% from what it would be when we held Sierra Week the year earlier. By the end of the week, the oil price was down 10%, not connected to the conference, but yeah, I think sure. to, to uh, uh, because we had the Saudi minister, the Russian minister, uh, uh, the, the secretary general of OPEC, the head of IEA there. And, you know, the message was uh, that this OPEC, non-OPEC, Agreement is really going to yeah. going to hold, but uh, as you point to inventories, you know that they said the key metric that they'll be looking at is inventories, and inventories remain high. I think that um, what was already clear in Houston is that the next key date is May 25th when uh, OPEC meets, and I think coming out of this meeting this weekend, right. wait, they're signaling that uh, they really, if if they don't. Uh, extend their six-month agreement, six months goes by quickly, uh, that would put uh, new pressure on the oil price. Particularly, I should say, with the amount that U.S. producers have been able to Mm -hmm. hedge their production forward. Dr. Juergen, honored to have you on with us for this historic day of the United Kingdom. Folks, I'll put out on Twitter, Juergen's the commanding heights. Can't say enough about it. We are on the edge of April, and April in any and all cases means the meetings of the International Monetary Fund. We'll, of course, give you complete coverage of that. We begin today with the publication of Fiscal Politics, and are honored to bring you Vito Gaspar uh, with the International uh, Monetary uh, Fund. Dr. Gaspar, good morning. Good morning, Tom. Within your wonderful document and thoughtful 200 plus, uh, excuse me, 400 plus pages. Uh, Could you please tell me what you learned about austerity? You know, I look at the history being made uh, by Prime Minister May today. I look at the challenges of Europe. And that word from three or four years ago was austerity. How does austerity fold into our political fiscal or our fiscal politics? So, uh, Tom, uh, the um, uh, political economy aspects, the link between politics and economics was a tradition uh, in economics up to the beginning of the 20th century. That tradition has been a little bit lost recently and about two years ago. 
we decided at the Fiscal Affairs Department of the International Monetary Fund that looking at the relation between politics and economics in general, and especially the relation between uh, politics and fiscal policy was key. And so we launched this uh, project that is now uh, come to the presentation of uh, this book that includes uh, three parts and 19 chapters on a very wide variety of topics on fiscal policy and politics. Unfortunately, we don't have a special uh, focus on austerity, but we do have uh, quite a lot on how uh, one uh, should think about the political conditions that allow governments to uh, follow sound counter-cyclical uh, fiscal policies, which is a key priority today. I hope, Tom, that given that we launched this program, this uh, project two years ago, right. you will concede to us that we got our timing more or less right. No, Tom? You, one of the chapters of the 19 that stood out to me is one that you authored here yes. on lessons that the European Union can learn from early American uh, history. Give us the praises of that. Uh, what, what, uh, what lessons are there to be learned uh, from what happened in this country when it comes to supranational fiscal policy? Oh, th that experience is absolutely fascinating. So uh, if you go to the beginning of uh, the U.S. administration with Alexander Hamilton. So in uh, 17, uh, 1789, Hamilton already benefited from the U.S. Constitution. One of the innovations from the U.S. Constitution was that the federal government was given the power to tax. Since that power was no longer disputed, the federal government had the ability to generate the revenues necessary to service and repay the very large debts that had been accumulated during the uh, War of uh, Independence. And Alexander Hamilton was extremely systematic in building the new uh, U.S. federal administration that, of course, did not uh, exist before, he built up the U.S. tax capacity at the federal level completely from scratch. And uh, one of the aspects that I develop more in this paper is that he uh, set up the conditions uh, that allow U.S. Treasury bonds to become the ultimate safe asset in the U.S. and a cornerstone of uh, the U.S. financial system. And that is the uh, part which I believe is more uh, relevant for uh, European integration right. today. Uh, we're gonna, we have breaking news, sir, so we're going to have to leave it short. But Vitor Gaspar, congratulations on uh, this work from the International Monetary Fund. Fiscal politics really beginning to kick off uh, the view of international economics that focuses on the World Bank and IMF meetings uh, here in the end of April. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. 
I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC.